Welcome to the Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast, mythology mashups and odd apologues for young audiences. I am your host, Amanda Louise, moving you through the realms of malicious monsters, meritorious heroes, through the practice of real and imagined magic, shining a light into the darkness, and conjuring something meaningful out of chaos. Welcome back to The Viking and the Princess. In our first three chapters, we met Akeda, who's a Viking, and he was given a quest by the gods of Asgard to find a certain compass after defeating an evil snow queen who had wanted to add him to her collection of frozen man-souls. The gods gave him three magical gifts to aid him on his journey. Thor gave him silver arrows, Aodin gave him a bag of oranges, and Odin gave him a scroll of poetry. The Viking was supposed to be able to get the compass from an Atlantean princess. However, when Akeda found her drifting out to sea as a human sacrifice, she was not exactly amenable to being rescued. He used his silver arrows from Thor to defeat a fat, foolish giant, and the oranges, which turned out to be golden apples, to defeat some misandrist mermaids. The Viking was ready to turn back for the north. But first, he had to stop at a mysterious island to make repairs to his boat. No, you can't tell me what to do, Moiety fussed. And if you would have just listened to me and taken me home instead of messing around with those mermaids, my father would have had your boat fixed already. Your mother was trying to marry you to an ocean troll. You can't be serious. Well, I am serious. I'm going to go find someone to help us. Ha ha, the Viking laughed. The gods go with you. And he compartmentalized his thoughts back to boat repairs as the Princess Moiety paraded off into the jungle. Time dragged. Moiety felt that she must have been plodding along for hours. The interior of the island was a dark, tangled jungle. The ground was soft with gripping, sucking black mud. And the princess, who was quite up to her knees in the sticky stuff, had a mind to go back and tell the Viking what she thought about his lack of initiative in assisting her in her escapade. So far, Moiety's mind had been bouncing up and down on a carousel of similar thoughts. She had not noticed the thick silence asphyxiating the jungle air. Moiety turned abruptly. It occurred to her that she might not know the way back to the beach, and her stomach jerked in protest as she suddenly became aware of the sucking silence permeating the foliage. Hello? She called out. Her voice sounded alone. Moiety turned again. The jungle could not be completely devoid of life. It was a jungle. This time, scanning her environment, she noticed a lizard who, as soon as she saw it, lost its grip on the tree and plopped like overripe fruit onto the path. It laid on its side, twitching. Moiety then fully opened her eyes to her surroundings and saw that she was surrounded 
by birds and lizards. Each one is silent and cold as silverware. Each one watching her with unblinking, unseeing orange eyes. Moiety tried to remain proud. Um, I'm okay. I think the beach is back this way, she told herself. Moiety was doing fairly well at remaining calm and was making some progress out of the jungle until she saw the monkey. The monkey was only about a meter in length and was hanging passively upside down on a grapevine. When the monkey saw that Moiety had finally noticed her, she widened her eyes and smiled a grostek, counterfeit smile, flashing a mechanical maw full of thousands of thin medical needles. She calmly advanced on Moiety's position, and terror detonated in the princess's mind. Moiety backed up and fled towards what? She did not know. Nighttime fully gripped the island and Moiety's resolve to be brave. Moiety was in full panic, but still vaguely aware that if the monkey had wanted to catch her, it would have done so by now. She continued to push through the muddy brambles, spiraling ever deeper into the bowels of the jungle. And suddenly, as if it had been spontaneously created, a bright clearing appeared ahead through the tangled vines. It glowed red with an acrid, phosphorescent light, and moiety was drawn into it like a shrimp to an anglerfish. The clearing was larger than it had originally appeared. Its red light seemed to billow out past where moiety assumed the ocean should have been. The ground was dry and covered with wispy grasses. A skeletal tree protruded from dead center in the parched ground. Its brittle branches scratched the dark sky. The thing that captivated the senses was a dinosaur-sized chameleon lazily poised amongst the limbs. The great lizard was pinching the tree with rounded claws, and the princess felt sure that the tree should be collapsing under her scaly weight. Its face was stunningly large, and Moiti was nauseated at the thought that her whole body could fit inside that cavernous dragon mouth with room to move. The chameleon opened and closed her mouth thoughtfully, revealing a muscular lump of tongue between her expressionless jaws. I have been waiting so long for you. Her musical voice resonated in the back of the princess's skull. The ugly chameleon's stunning voice made up for what she lacked in beauty, and the princess was captivated by its tone. How could something be bad when it sounded so good? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there is no danger here. Moiety vacillated in her mind. How did you know I was coming? I know all things wise, and you, princess, shall be a queen of great wisdom. No one had ever complimented the princess on her wisdom, and Moiety was intrigued. Ooh, great wisdom, she murmured and enjoyed its music. The chameleon's eyes moved quite independently of its head and of each other. 
She tossed her glance towards moiety, while the other eye pierced the forest, then up to the sky, and then back to moiety again, in rapid succession. Twitch, twitch, twitch. Of course, you are already very, very wise, the chameleon sang. Moiety did not feel wise at all. She felt sleepy and warm in spite of her pounding heart. What do you want with me? Moiety was suspicious with an awkward sense of growing comfort. I only want to give you eternal life. I am a brilliant light and a wellspring of generosity. The more I give myself away, the brighter I become. The chameleon's music was starting to sound more like a gonging, clanging cymbal in Moiety's head. Something was telling her to resist, but the nauseating, sleeping feeling was growing stronger. What do you want from me, she asked again, now thoroughly alarmed. I will take your old heart of flesh and I will put in its place a new heart. A mechanical heart, a heart that will never die. Your flesh may fail, but your heart will continue to click throughout ages into time immortal. Don't you mean beat? Moiety murmured, more to herself than to anyone else. No, I mean click. Beating is weak. Blood is weak. I will animate you and give your body a power, causing your body to soar past the grave. The chameleon raised a pinchered hand to reveal the heart. It was a shiny, black, whirring tangle of tiny gears, clicking valves, and spinning springs. The heart was entirely fashioned from lodestone. If someone had brought her the heart while she was at home in Atlantis, Moiety would have loved it. It would have held her attention for at least a solid hour before she lost it in the piles of other presents and bribes she had received over the years. However, tonight, Moiety did not respond to the gesture. She was sound asleep, with a monkey biting her heel and pumping her body completely full of anesthetizing venom. Akeda had finished making repairs to his longboat hours ago. Being on the beach with the rolling waves... He also had missed the clue of the island's queer silence, and now as he paced on the sand, he knew that too much time had elapsed for the princess to return out of boredom from her march. Some other sort of problem must have waylaid her. Akeda imagined that her dress might have become stuck in a bramble and that she did not want to cut it. However, when the Viking penetrated the jungle veil, he realized that something much more vile than oily mud and brambles was infused in this forest. The silence carried itself on a pungent stench that Akeda at once recognized as Echidesis, the sloth of shed reptile skin. The island was either full of reptiles or home to a giant reptile. Akeda did not want to consider the possibility of both. The thickness of the night poured in around his heart. Despite the princess's obvious lack of charm, the Viking felt deeply responsible for her safety. At least that's what he told himself. He did not want to entertain the thought 
that he might actually like the objectionable little female. He did not want to admit that he cared what she thought, and he certainly did not want any of these ridiculous feelings getting in the way of performing the job that he had to do. As the night grew darker, the stars seemed to grow brighter and closer, sparkling with an eerie blue light. He stopped to attempt to understand his cardinal directions and was irritated to realize that the stars on this island were not the same as the stars in the real world. There was no great bear, no hunter, no rabbit, no dog, no... only a hodgepodge of completely unfamiliar constellations of... Wait, by Asgard, is that star dripping strings? Makeda balked. It was true. All the stars were dripping, thin, luminescent strings. The stars were not stars at all, at least not the kind that lives in outer space. As Akeda sat in wonderment, a segmented glowworm the size of the five-year-old child lowered herself down to his eye level on gossamer slime string. She blinked bulbous eyes and giggled. Boo! She shouted in delight. Akeda was a comical sight, jumping in surprise in all his leather armor with a raised bow in hand. The glowworm was a larva. Of course it was a child. You can call me Lucy, or Luciferin for long, the wiggling glowworm announced with another half-stifled giggle. Don't you mean you can call me Lucy for short? Akeda asked. No. Why are you in such a hurry? Love is patient. Call me Luciferin for long. A patient child. The island seemed to yield no end of ironies. The Viking, ever at a loss as to how to relate to children, resorted to his favorite question to ask small people. Where are your parents? I do not remember well. I'm only 10,000 years old. The glowworm's lavender eyes shone. I believe I remember something of my mother. She was there before the mountains were settled into place. She was the compass he used when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. We brothers and sisters are stardust, the eternal children. We wrap the newborn stars in silk casing to protect their songs as they are being born. This island is the womb of constellations. We have lived in the caves beneath the island for millennia, but we had to move out and live in the trees when the monster came. What monster? the Viking asked, recalling the stench of Ecdesis. The monster is forged from false breath. She is man's empty praise. She is the word, twisted into lies, made into flesh and dwelling among us. Well, where did she come from? The power of her life breath comes from the vacuum, the negative energy that is introduced when lies are planted and watered with belief. If she's such a powerful evil, why is she not ensconced in the ghettos of cities? Why would she be operating out of a beautiful island in the middle of a blue ocean? Much evil can be found in beauty, because it desires beauty, but it is not creative. It cannot create its own beauty, and therefore seeks to conquer and consume it. Evil deconstructs beauty. Evil is a fowler delighting to rip the head off the bird or joyously breaking the neck of a deer. It's a pimp exposing a child 
It is an invading army burning the grain fields. Evil desires beauty, but adds nothing to it. Evil is chaos, then? Ikeda, like most adults, was quite out of his league in debating philosophy with the child. Not entirely. It also comes in the guise of order. Evil is as complex as imposing law where freedom is sufficient, or as simple as working when you should be playing. So you're saying evil's an imbalance of chaos and order. Does evil owe its existence to chaos and order? Partially. Evil is the energetic emptiness that hijacks what is good and makes it meaningless. And with that, she looked him up and down and said, Maybe you know too much for a mortal now. Wasn't it the wisest of your kind who said, In much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. More luminescent string poured from her pores, and she continued, Yes, it will only expand its kingdom at the expense of what it has already conquered. Truth and goodness have their own life energy rooted into the fabric of the universe. They fall for a time, and then they grow again. And evil will always be found grasping at the heel of goodness because it cannot exist on its own. If both chaos and order crumble because they are unsustainable, what keeps them so strong? Lies are only sustainable insofar as people are willing to lie to sustain a lie, and lies will be latched onto the jugular vein of truth because it cannot exist of its own volition. This is why a truth that is half a truth is the most deadly lie. What is truth? asked Ikeda in such a way that it was clearly understood that he did not really think there was a good answer for such a fundamental question. The kind glowworm humored him, understanding that grown-ups tend to be brittle when it comes to understanding basics. Truth is not an accident. It takes practice to hit a mark with an arrow. Truth is accuracy. The thick, glowing mucus puddling at Luciferin's feet began to pulsate with light so that the Viking could almost make out a rhythm in its cadence. Considerable effort goes into what is called Rightly dividing the word of truth, and a sharp mind like a double-edged sword is necessary to flesh out the lies that hinder and so easily entangle. And for one brief moment in time, the universe granted grace to the Viking, breathing its vis fatae into his senses. He realized that there was no difference between the light that causes us to see and the physical presence of the thing seen. He could hear the light, and the sound of colorful music that causes things to be created. It was as if his eyes and ears became one organ, and he could hear the song that was in the light, and see the light that was in the song. He realized for just one breath that stars were not just combustion gases, and how deep the truth of the childish story about wishing on stars when starlight is the byproduct of demi-urgent creative energy. He felt at the same time the depth of his own discord and the scope at which he had the terrible responsibility of transcending that depravity. 
Mortals are not omnipresent, but they are present. Mortals are not omniscient, but they are sentient. Mortals are not gods, but they do have the breath of God. Luciferin continued to drone on about something inscrutable. But Akeda was starting to understand on his own as he listened to the sound that the light made. This is what he heard. Love is patient. Love is kind. Takes its tempered time to quietly unwind all the things we cannot hold to break them from our rigid mold. Love knows no envy, yet still flows with plenty, but to the pride of life, it's deadly. Rejecting hungry, lusting eyes and all the flesh that acts likewise. Love neither arrogant nor rude, not yielding unto its mood nor unto fickle vicissitudes. It does not pinch the wick that smolders. It is the broken reed upholder. Love does not rest in resent. It is a root that breaks cement, disrupting all our best intents, entitlement to vengeance and sanctimonious ascendance. Love rejoices not in wrongdoing, it's an angel revealed in marble hewing, turns away from endless pursuing, things it is not meant to hold, things that quench us if we gain control. Akatis shook the strange feeling off. Beautiful or not, there was a real and highly advanced evil lurking on the island. He had to keep his head in the game. Luciferin motioned for Akeda to follow. She pulled back the branches to reveal a winding trail that disappeared mysteriously into the heart of the jungle. It was very dark, but the ground was solid and the trees were dotted with innumerable specks of bright blue light. Gradually, they came to a mossy banked creek. Luciferin oozed off the trail and slipped beneath the waters. It was a slate blue darkness of unbroken surface stillness, and her bright light was completely obscured as she passed beneath its surface. Akeda stepped onto the water, completely expecting the water to yield to his weight. But as he stepped out, the water held him on top, only yielding a slight depression where he should have been in over his head. He moved to the center of the deep creek and dropped down to his knees. His spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The water was real water, but it was slow. The surface tension did not immediately break, as all the water that the Viking had ever encountered did. It was as if time inside the water molecules had simply slowed to the point where a day was as a thousand years so that their separation and displacement happened over the course of minutes rather than seconds. The Viking gradually sank if he stayed on one spot, but if he kept moving onto new water, it stayed in place just long enough for him to take a step. Thank you for listening to this Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast. This is an original story by Amanda Louise Van Stratum. All rights reserved. 
For more original stories and poetry, including links to purchase text copies of my books, please visit me at sunshinesatellite.com. If you've enjoyed this story, please let me know by leaving me a review and rating in the comments section. I hope to hear from you soon.